This week on Life and Faith. This is tricky because it's a book about time, but it's also supposed to be quietly, by implication, just a little bit, round the edges, a book about eternity as well. So it was written so that... You could read it just as a meditation on mortality for people who think that mortality is the whole picture. But it's also, I hope, written so that if you think that there is a place in which losses are made good and everything that gets scattered is ultimately gathered up again, you can see that too. It's supposed to be poised between belief and unbelief so that you get both pictures. One of the most intimate places you can be with someone is at the moment of their death. This is the only world in which I live. I don't live in another world. I am autonomous and independent and self-sufficient, and I will get to decide my good. This is Life and Faith from CPX. I'm Simon Smart. Celebrated British writer of both fiction and non-fiction, Francis Bufford, has just released his second novel, Light Perpetual. Now, we've had him on Life and Faith before, talking about his book, Unapologetic, why, despite everything, Christianity still makes surprising emotional sense. Always love that title. And his latest book is an enthralling story about time and loss, love and heartbreak. And one that poses some intriguing questions around memory, lives not lived, and in a beautifully subtle way, our nagging and persistent sense of eternity. I'm really pleased to be able to bring you this conversation. I was able to chat to Francis Buffett via video link from his home near Cambridge. Francis Spafford, so good to see you and uh, congratulations on the book. It's a monumental achievement. You've not played it safe with this book, have you? I don't really see the point in playing it safe. I I kind of never have done. And maybe that's because I'm thick-skinned or of a daring disposition or just a bit slow. But I don't really see why, if you're doing something that takes years to write, you shouldn't try for the things that are at the edges of what you can manage. I don't see the point in not taking the risk. Well, it's... For people listening, it's an ambitious project, this. And uh, I have to say, I think you've really pulled it off. So thank you for it. You're welcome. Um, I've been, I mean, the starting point is that for the last 13 years now, I've been walking to work past this discreet little plaque on the wall of a very unimpressive looking supermarket in South London, which says that a German V2 missile fell there in November 1944 and killed more people at once than any other single German bomb, 168. And of those, 15 were under the age of 11. And I'm just haunted in a really prolonged way by the thought of those children and the way they didn't get to see the rest of the 20th century and in particular the ways that London has changed so enormously over that time Um, and it eventually struck me that the strange magnifying glass of the novel could sort of do something about that Um, not magic not restoring the actual lives of those actual children but providing a kind of image of what was lost and and of what might be restored from it it's all the futures they won't get to all the would-bes might-bes could-bes of the decades to come how can that loss be measured how can that loss be known 
except by laying this absence, now and onwards, against some other version of the reel of time, where might be, and could be, and would be, still may be, where, by some little alteration, some altered single second of arc, back in Holland where the rocket launched, it flew 400 yards further into Bexford Park and killed nothing but pigeons, or suffered a guidance failure, as such crude mechanisms do, and slipped unnoticed between North Sea waves. Come, other future. Come, mercy not manifest in time. Come, knowledge not obtainable in time. Come, other chances. Come, unsounded deep. Come, undivided light. Come, dust. The premise is you have these five characters and their lives and you kind of imagine them into existence beyond that tragedy. It's sort of what could have been. It's, in yeah. many ways, it felt to me like a meditation on time and what it does to all of us, right? Exactly. It was, I wanted to write something about what it's like to live in time, which we all do. It's the oh. invisible medium in which, in which we do everything we do. Um, and yet astonishingly hard to put your finger on as a thing in itself. The the go-to quote here is from St. Augustine, who says, I know exactly what time is until anyone asks me, um, which, <laughs> which was true in the 6th century AD and is absolutely true now as well. And I wanted to do something which made time and the passage of time more visible, more feelable than it usually is. Both the kind of long run time of our lives, the way that, that, you know, the decades go by and we stay recognisably the same people and yet we change. Um, but also the shorter bits, the shape of individual days and down smaller than that as well. The, the little bits of really intense time where we understand something or do something we can't take back. Um, and even the musical time, because there's a lot of music in the book, the musical time of a song, which after all is one of the ways that human beings kind of organise time in the most meaningful way for us. We, we put in a, three minutes of a piece of rhythm which is quite like a heartbeat and over the top of it we put in a melody which is kind of like the meaning we try to make of three minutes of heartbeat. And um, yeah, I wanted something that did micro time and macro time and, and the whole of a lifetime together right. and more with more of a texture than, than we usually get to see, even though it's our absolutely universal experience. Yes, as I say, ambitious. I felt like um, in creating these characters and sort of giving them this, this existence and the way you handled them, it felt like a kind of defiance of the ravages of time and also the randomness of life. Is that something you can kind of relate to? It's that you create out of real loss and in a sense resist that loss. Yes. Um, it doesn't abolish loss to resist loss, of course. And looked at from one no. point of view, that's just shaking a fist at the universe, which gets you absolutely nowhere. But it is the human thing to do. And I think it's part of appreciating where we are and the, the, the fact of our mortality. If we didn't mind... <laughs> that we were mortal, um, our lives wouldn't have the stature that they actually have being mortal. Um, this is tricky um, because it's a book about time, but it's also supposed to be quietly, by implication, just a little bit round the edges, a book about eternity as well. So mm. 
it was written so that so that you could read it just as a meditation on mortality for people who think that mortality is the whole picture. But it's also, I hope, written so that if you don't think there's that, if you think that there is a a place in which losses are made good and everything that gets scattered is ultimately gathered up again, you can see that too. It's supposed to be poised between belief and unbelief so that you get both pictures. I felt like you have such empathy for your characters. You understand them. You write very sympathetically about them. They're all damaged. They're all wounded, uh, like us all. Uh, But usually I feel like that you have grace and some redemptive possibilities there that seems to me to be part of realism or at least realism as i practiced it (laughs) we are all observably damaged but we are all observably capable of second chances and turns towards redemption and also capable of refusing them when they when they come along one of my characters spends um who's got his you know his finger up his nose as a little boy when the when the missile falls on him at the beginning of the book basically spends the whole of the book turning down opportunities for yeah. redemption and there's a kind of self-destructive integrity to that good on you Vern. um <laughs> he sticks with his, his you know, character yeah and he's in in a sense as somebody pointed out his finger stays up his nose his entire life and he's just yeah. he's not sorry <laughs> because that too is a yeah. is a human possibility but It seems to me that trying for clear sight about how human beings work entails the most kind of sympathy of which you're capable as a writer. You look hard and you try to get what people who are very unlike yourself are like to themselves on the inside. And that seems to me to be an essentially kind act. It doesn't mean you soften the edges of the bad stuff and the the little bits of sleaze and meanness which go with, with being human, but it does mean that you're trying for a kind of understanding context for it all. Um, some bits easier to write than others, given that I'm really not like any of these five characters, but... Um, The great advantageous con of being a novelist is that you can spend months or, if necessary, years trying your best to understand five minutes in somebody else's life and then write it down as if it just came to you and people will go, ooh, he's so perceptive. But actually, you know, that was the month of September replied to to understanding (laughs) that. Well, the best writing surely does have to do that, right? There's oceans and of material underneath what you get and uh it's clear that you've been dwelling on these characters for a very long time you have a real uh novelist eye for detail you are clearly a keen observer of human behavior is that a torturous thing for you or an enjoyable thing i'm a shy person um and Hmm. and obviously i'm delighted you say that i'm a keen observer of of human behavior but i'm actually usually observing it from the corner of a room in which i hide behind a large mug of coffee and hope nobody notices me Um, i'm but still that's observant i hope so i am endlessly interested in other people although with a slight tendency to hide and pull the duvet over my head um, as well yeah now i wonder about this book being a function of the stage of life that you're at and it's sort of looking back reflecting on ups and downs and decisions taken sometimes opportunities lost that kind of thing are you in that sort of reflective mode personally? i think so yeah i'm 57 in another three months or so and i think there is something about being in your 50s which makes you go which makes you 
able to see the span of a life more easily you can see that you've had the majority of it for one thing but you can also you have memories that go back 30 or 40 years and you've had the chance to see places change and and people metamorphose in time and you begin to see that there is a kind of unity to the span of a human life yeah an untidy unity but still a unity and you know you're being tapped on the shoulder by mortality in some ways historically speaking 56 is a good long life already and i'm i'd kind of hope for a bit more um but you're, you're being tapped gently on the shoulder by mortality you can see that you've got a finite amount of time and you can kind of see the phases of life starting to to unroll so you have more of a map i think for looking at your own life and other people's too um of course like any advantage it comes with disadvantages and one of them is that it's now harder to remember what it was like being 22 and convinced that you were immortal and that everything would go on forever and where hey take the top down and drive at 80 miles an hour yeah yeah and you have this as a sort of a lovely it's almost a melancholy in this story a sort of nostalgic in a good sense so the life not lived choices that are shut down there's a sort of a wistful you know, longing for that. Is it a cathartic thing to to write like that and, and yeah. sort of focus on longings that we all share? Yeah, I mean, that is part of the kind of, I think, the secret apparatus of writing fiction, that you get to act in this kind of quite literal way. You make up real other lives um, mm. on that thing we all get, which is looking back to the multiple possibilities that your life once had and going, actually, I've ended up with this one. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm lucky and I'm happy and I like this one. But nevertheless, I do notice that once upon a time I could have been anything and now I'm just this. And if you're a writer, you get to go, well, what about all the other things that I could have been and you can project them over onto what other people are doing. So, yes, it's it's wistfulness in motion in some ways. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, it's lovely. Now, there was a re- review in The Guardian that I read that said, Spufford has, as a writer, a Christian heart without ever being off-puttingly pious, which I thought was kind of nice. And my sense of this was that um, as you reflect on time and where it takes us... Um, what it does to us, there, there was a sense, I'm going to throw this up, you might say it's complete nonsense, but of a sort of a present absence, right? God, for instance, is not mentioned at all, but there's this sense of him being in the background perhaps all the time. Is there anything, am I onto anything there or am I just sort of making it up? No, 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 you're detecting exactly the present absence that I meant to put in there in an absent present kind of way. Um, <laughs> when people go not in an off-puttingly pious way, often what they mean is without kind of hitting the big gongs that people identify as as religious but on the quiet i'm doing some other stuff there not in a propagandist way but just because it's it's how i understand the shape of the world so what i believe myself is that when children get killed by a bomb everything they lose is somehow made good by a loving god um that god's capacity to remember what happened and who we've been and also who we might have been and who we should have been if we'd had the chance takes care of that but you know i don't know how i'm not looking at the world from a god's eye view but what i can do is offer a kind of image of that that works in fictional terms and that goes well as a kind of image of god's unfailing embrace towards lost things 
let's make good the lost things like this. It's a kind of little fictional counterpart of what I think is really happening in the world. Um, and then within those imagined resurrected lives, I wanted to write about lives that people think are completely secular because most people these days do think their lives are completely secular. Um, but again, if you are a believer, you don't think that the activity of the Holy Spirit ends at the church doors. You tend to think that the Holy Spirit is living and active and is out there in the world doing its, his, her thing kind of all the time. So what I wanted was for these lives, which are a kind of fictional resurrection, to still have the work of the Spirit going on in them. They still have opportunities for redemptions. They still have the insistent tug within the heart towards good and away from the damage we do um they are still quietly getting messages about what might be until the very last possible moment and i it doesn't matter to me if people don't detect that as a religious mm. thing to do um the label's not important but right. but the shape of it is what i wanted to put in and as i say earlier there's this sort of um the resistance, you know, they're sort of playing your part in that sort of recreation, if you like, that and redemptive sort of action in even just giving these people their lives. Their lives aren't uh, all beer and Skittles. I mean, there's, there's violence, there's mental illness, there's heartbreak. I mean, these are tough lives that people live. Yeah. Well, I hoped that they seemed like real lives with a real yeah. mix of possibilities in. And it's always tricky whether, whether you're going to try and be representative in the sense of covering the range of what human beings are capable of or being representative in the sense of, of producing a kind of average sample of what happens to human beings. And in some ways, even though I'm trying to write about ordinary-ish lives, if there are such things... Um, there's still a murder in there, there's still some mental illness, there's still getting nearly famous for one of the characters and then not. Um, but I wanted to get the whole kind of tragicomic range of things in there, the awful stuff that goes with being human and the wonderful stuff, and in between the slightly boring stuff where you go to work every day and then you do it again. Because, after all, work, huge part of most people's lives, so ought to be in novels more, I think. This is Life and Faith, and I'm speaking with British author Francis Spufford about his latest book, the novel Light Perpetual. As you heard, the story was born out of Spufford's ruminations on the 1944 obliteration of a Woolworths in South London by a German missile that killed 168 people, including a number of children. And in Light Perpetual, he gives life to five characters out of that rubble, in a sense. Joe and Valerie, Ben and Vernon, and Alec. Right at the beginning, Spufford slows time and delivers a description of the missile landing on the supermarket on a Saturday morning in London. It's quite stunning and perfectly introduces the story and how he's going to, in a sense, birth his five characters. This particular Saturday lunchtime, Woolworths on Lambert Street in the borough of Bexford has a delivery of saucepans and they are stacked on a table upstairs, gleaming cleanly. 
No one has seen a new pan for years and there's an eager crowd of women around the table. Purses ready, kids too small to leave at home brought along to the shop. There's Joe and Valerie with their mum, wearing tam shanters knitted from wool scraps. Alec with his spindly knees showing beneath his shorts. Ben gripped firmly by his and looking slightly mazed, as usual. Chunky Vernon with his grandma, product of a household where they never seem to run quite as short of the basics as other people do. The women's hands reach out towards the beautiful aluminium, but a human arm cannot travel far in a ten-thousandth of a second, and they seem motionless. The children stand like statues, executed in flesh. Vern's finger is up his nose. Something is moving visibly, though, even with time at this magnification. Over beyond the table, by the rack of yellowed knitting patterns, something long and sleek and sharp is coming through the ceiling, preceded by a slow, tumbling cloud of plaster and bricks and fragmented roof tiles. Amid the twinkling debris, the tapering cone of the warhead has a geometric dignity as it slides forward, the dull green bulk of the rocket pushing into sight behind, inch by inch. Inside the cone, the amatol is already burning. Shoppers, saucepans, ballistic missile. What's wrong with this picture? No one is going to tell us. Joe and Alec, as it happens, are looking in the right direction. Their gaze is fixed on the gap between the shoulders of Mrs. Jones and Mrs. Canahan, where the rocket is sliding into view. But they can't see it. Nobody can. The image of the V2 is on their retinas, but it takes far longer than a ten-thousandth of a second for a human eye to process an image and send it to a brain. Much sooner than that, the children won't have eyes anymore, or brains. This instant, this interval of time, measurably tiny, immeasurably vast, arrives unwitnessed, passes unwitnessed, ends unwitnessed. And yet it is a real moment. It really happens. It really takes its necessary place in the sequence of moments by which 910 kilos of Amatol are delivered among the saucepans. Amazing description you uh, provide right at the beginning. When this bomb arrives at the Woolworths, and it sort of utterly destroys everything in its path. And you give this incredible description of that. And then you get towards the end of that and you say, in, in relation to those people, their part in time is done. That's time for you. It breaks things up. It scatters them. It cannot be run backwards to summon the dust to rise any more than you can stir milk back out of tea. Once sundered, forever sundered. Once scattered, forever scattered. It's irreversible. Uh, it's a... Uh, a way in which, though, that you then kind of do overcome some of that scattering and sundering and, the, and you, you end up kind of creating something lovely out of it. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's in there as a paradox because that's true and it's only in novels or possibly in Divine Grace that you get to undo the universal experience that time breaks things up and never puts them back together again. Um, but everything I say about time is supposed to leave open the possibility of of eternity 
where being doesn't exist in sequence, doesn't depend on the tick of the clock, um, isn't subject to to being scattered and and abandoned. So even though we can't summon the dust to rise, it isn't necessarily the end of the story that we all go to dust. Um, That's only time. Who says that's that? (laughs) Not me. Now... Historical fiction these days can sometimes be frustratingly anachronistic. Uh, or is that just how I find it? I mean, it, you go to huge lengths to put your reader into the past and try to accurately represent that and different eras of that period you're, you've gone through. Now, that takes some work. How important is this sort of responsibility of the writer to get that as close to accurate as you can? Very, I think. Um, But there are always limits. I mean, I I had the advantage of having lived through about two-thirds of the eras in in this book, and I was was in London for some of those times as well, though seeing it from a very different angle usually, but there was some kind of sense evidence to draw on as well. And I, I actually enjoyed the process of dipping into past things to try to get the feeling right. It's not a chore. It's one of the the pleasures of writing for me, one of the central things. You can feel the world sort of stirring and showing signs of life as you study it, and I I love that. But I'm glad you think it seems completely solid and real, but this is one of the (laughs) areas where you look in the back of the dictionary and it goes, writer, see under con artist, (laughs) because there's enough in there to make it stick. But as always, you have to remember that I'm controlling where the camera is looking. And behind, there is an empty sound stage with a man in overalls kind of moving the props from the last scene ruin, and then having a cigarette break. So, <laughs> Yes, well, you conned me if, that, if that's what happened. But it's a serious discussion, though, isn't it? Because people can kind of use history to kind of be kind of very ideological too and, um, and manipulate people. Yes, you can. And there's a delicate line which is very hard to observe between being true to your own convictions about the shape of history and using them to push something onto other people. Um, Part of being truthful is being true to the way you understand things. Um, But part of being truthful is also looking for the bits where where history actually defies your understanding of it and doesn't want to be put into your comfortable categories. And that's the permanent danger that you've gently made history kinder or more polemical or or more conveniently moral in some way that that you wanted it to be. Um, I hope I haven't done that, but in some ways I'm the worst person to know whether I have because the stuff, well, where I've got it wrong will, by definition, be the places where it's invisible to me that I got it wrong. So perhaps someone else will point that out. There was a lovely passage towards the end of the book where I can't give away too much, but there's this sort of um, imperfect reunion with two people who've had a life and and sort of lost it. I found that a very moving passage. Um, Are you so in, in the 
depth of your character? Do you, do you find yourself moved even as the story is sort of flowing out from you? I oh, yeah. That. I'm a tearful and unstoical man anyway. I have to be removed <laughs> from Pixar films by my family in, in floods of tears. So, so, yes, I get upset quite easily at the things that happen to completely imaginary people that I just made up. Um, but I'm yeah. in good company here. Not that I'm comparing myself to him, but Dickens is on record of, of getting through the hankies as he dealt with his character's deaths. So, yeah. Yeah, that's a, that's a f- fascinating part of the process. I mean, you probably miss dream about these people, miss them when they're, you know. Yeah, not um, yeah no, I'm, I miss them now the book's over. Um, mm. I mean, they're all still there, I hope. Um, <laughs> I must go and check and, and pay a visit. Um, but, mm. yeah, it, it is weird living intensely with, with five imaginary people in your head and then you reach the last page and you think, uh <laughs> Bye. Well, it must be hard to know when to, to stop because these you know, these lives are endlessly fascinating. The other thing is you talked about mundane parts of life. You spend a lot of time sort of teasing out some of the things that are mundane in life, but you sort of show them to be significant yeah. as well. I think that was a, another sort of gift of this book. Well, again, that's my sense that there's nothing ordinary about ordinary time and that there are little mysteries and little wonders buried in it all the way through. Um, also just that things people spend a lot of time on deserve looking at. And that's why the book contains plastering and washing up and childminding and things like that, because those matter. They take up a big proportion of time. The time of our lives does not consist of significant high moments. It also consists of the bit where you're persuading a two-year-old to come upstairs and making conversation as they do one step and then another step and then another step and then stop halfway up and because they've forgotten something downstairs and have to come up with something where they need to keep going. Um, those things are real and they are, if I may strike a moment of deep solemnity here, they are kind of they are fundamental to our humanity. We don't live on the heights. We live on the whole mountain range of time, including the dull bits in the middle. So those should be in books preferably in an interesting way. (laughs) To finish up, I wanted to return to an earlier part of the conversation and ask Francis Spufford about the degree to which this is a hopeful story. There's a lot about time and life ravaging us and taking away opportunity and, in the most dramatic sense, the bomb at the start and its action of scattering and ruining. Where might hope be located beyond all that very real toll of human existence and suffering? This was his response. It's why the very last two words of the book, the, the final come dust, um, I've been fascinated. They work like a kind of piece of litmus paper, depending on whether you're a believer or not. If you're not a believer, you go, he's invoking death. Yeah. Um, he's saying that everything ends and that's that. Um, if you are a believer, you hear resurrection there, which is what I meant to put in. I haven't meant it to be quite so perfectly balanced between death and resurrection but there's resurrection at the very end as far as I'm concerned Um, and yes there's absolutely the hope that after time except after isn't the right word for eternity is it Um, and and then when I say the bit where Alec is dancing with his wife and thinking about the end of his life and he says then there'll be no more then after there will be no more after that's very deliberately constructed to allow for the possibility of eternity if because it's only no more sequence, no more time. It's not no more being. It's yes. not no more hope. It's just yeah. no more of the ticking of the clock.
This has been Life and Faith with me, Simon Smart. A huge thanks to Francis Spufford and also today to Lucy King for those readings of the book. Light Perpetual is available now on Kindle and in hard copy in March. Next week. There were always personal issues at stake um, in Salem and I think in all witchcraft trials. We can talk about larger scale issues like economic change or political conflicts, but witchcraft accusations always started out of conflicts between individuals.